7. Our scripture today is Hebrews 11, verses 13 to 16. Hebrews 11, 13 to 16. All these died in faith. 11, 13. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you that it reveals the truth. It reveals the truth of the gospel and gives us the hope, the hope of eternal life. We pray, Father, that we'll understand this hope better, that we will be just like the saints of old who put their hope on heavenly things and who live for the world to come, for that heavenly city, the better place, the place that is meant for us because of redemption in Christ, meant for us for all eternity. Grant us this kind of enduring faith, faith to believe in those unseen promises of God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. This passage, as it begins, all these died in faith, is trying to encourage us in a summary, in a way, in making a statement. It makes a statement or it establishes a principle as he is already done in a couple of cases. For example, in verse 1, he has established a principle or a doctrine, a premise, in verse 1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In verse 6, he has said, faith, without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now again, after giving us a few examples, he has come back to another premise or another explanation as to where he's going. He's trying to establish and show to us where all of this is headed. And where is it, he is it headed? In verse 13, it is dying in faith. That means having enduring faith until the day of one's death. And when we do that, we are putting our hope in something that's unseen, not in what is seen. And moreover, we consider ourselves to be strangers on the earth. We are strangers and nomads on the earth because our citizenship, where we actually belong permanently, is in heaven above. And when we come across afflictions in this life, when we come across afflictions in this life, it will be easily tempting for us to go back to our old ways. It will be easy for us to say, no, this is too difficult, I'm going to give it up and resort back to my old ways, my old life. It's easy for this to happen. And he says, the patriarchs, the saints of the Old Testament, they had that same temptation, but they didn't succumb to it. And then finally in verse 16, he says that the ultimate goal is the better country, the heavenly city. That is the better place. And this should be such a pursuit for us that we ought to consider the fact that God is not ashamed to call us or to identify with us. God is not ashamed to identify with us, and if he's not ashamed to identify with us, 
Why should we be ashamed to identify with him? Why should we give it up? Why should we say, this is too hard, this is too difficult, I'm going to pack my bags and go to do something else. I'm not going to pursue this Christian faith anymore. We shouldn't do that because he's not ashamed of us when he should be ashamed of us because of our sin. Let's see in more in depth what he's saying here. Verse 13, all these died in faith. Now he has just mentioned Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. They all died in faith with the exception of Enoch. He's speaking in generalities because the ones that he's about to mention for the rest of the chapter, they also died. They literally died. And the only exception is Enoch. But what is common to all men, according to chapter 9, verse 27, is that we all will die once and after this comes the judgment. Unless it's a miracle of God which it took place with two individuals, Enoch and Elijah. Otherwise, we will all die. We will all die to meet the Lord. This is the way it is. So if we're all going to die one day, then how should we die? In what condition should we die? Should we just die? As though we just do what we want on this earth and, this, and then to hope for the best in the life to come? Or should we die in faith? They died in faith, and he's trying to tell us we should die in faith. Die in faith. He's encouraged us not to shrink back. Look at chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Chapter 3 and verse 14, it says, For we have become partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, firm until the end. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, let us fear, lest while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you should seem to have come short of it. Chapter 6, verse 11, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. He's been saying again and again, we need to have enduring faith, persevering faith, faith that lasts until our last breath. That is what we all must have. This is the way it was in the past, and this is the way it is now. We all must have that kind of faith. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, to see that it is a real and even a common danger not to endure in the faith. It is a real and common danger not to endure in the faith. Matthew chapter 13. You may remember the parable of the sower. The parable of the sower. The sower or the farmer who sows or scatters seed on the ground and it falls on four different kinds of soil. And when it falls on four different kinds of soil, there are different reactions to the seed, the good seed that was sown or scattered onto those four soils. Let's see the interpretation of it and what Jesus says of it. Matthew 13, 18. 13, 18. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, 
The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Four kinds of soil. The seed is the same seed. And he says there, the seed is the word of the kingdom. It's the word of God. It's the gospel in verse 19. It is the truth of the gospel. That is a common proclamation. But the difference is the human heart. And there's four kinds that he describes. Verse 19, in the first case, the one who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. That which fell on the road, we might call it roadie, that roadie kind of soil, this is the one who hears the word, but he doesn't understand it. He might understand the words in terms of what you're saying, such as gospel, Jesus, death, cross, resurrection. He may understand it, but he may not understand it in the proper sense. He knows you're talking about someone who rose from the dead, but he doesn't really get it, really understand it in terms of its significance, in terms of its meaning toward people or specifically toward the one who heard about it. So because he doesn't get it, doesn't understand it, what happens? The evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. Temporarily, during the message of a worship service, he heard it and he understood some things being said, but then once he leaves, it is erased from his memory or erased from his contemplation. He doesn't want to think about it anymore. What he really wants to do is think about whatever else is going on in his life. And when that happens, Jesus said, the evil one, the devil, Satan, is the one who has taken it away from his memory so that he doesn't think about it. He doesn't consider it anymore. This is something that came into his heart, but it disappeared quickly. Quickly disappeared. Verse 20. So he did not die in faith. He did not have any faith. Verse 20. 20 and 21 go together. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Now the rocky soil also heard the same word. And when it heard this word in verse 20, immediately receives it with joy. Hey, that sounds good. Hey, that's what I want. That's what I've always thought about. Really, yeah. I, who doesn't want to go to heaven? Who, wants, who doesn't want to avoid hell? If he considers heaven and hell to be real places, 
Who wants to actually go to hell forever and ever and be punished and be tormented? No. So when he sees or hears that there's a way to escape hell and to go to heaven, and it's easy, just believe. At least that's the way many times it's presented. And then he says, yes, that's what I want to do. I just want to believe. But then, a week later, a month later, maybe even the same day or the next day, he informs someone that he just became a Christian. Verse 21 says, Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. When affliction or persecution, he announced it to somebody, maybe a family member, maybe a friend, maybe a co-worker, maybe a buddy of some sort. He announced it to the buddy. Maybe it used to be his drinking buddy. Maybe it used to be his, his gambling buddy or whatever the sin is. He used to do those things and he announced, hey, listen, I just heard and yesterday about this and I'm a Christian now. And then his friend laughs at him. His friend ridicules him. His friend starts to call him a Bible thumper, starts to call him a brother, starts to call him something or the other to ridicule this new decision. But it says, immediately he falls away. Immediately he says, boy, hey, I, I, I didn't realize that was going to happen, and I don't want that to happen, so I want to keep all my friends, I want to keep all my family, I want to keep all of my position or my, my job in the company, I want to keep all of those things, I don't want to lose anything, and because I don't want to lose anything... I'm going to give up the faith. He falls away immediately. He says, I'd rather have everyone like me. I'd rather have everyone say nice things about me rather than say bad things about me. So he falls away. He did not die in faith. He fell away from the faith. Verse 22. And the one on whom seed was sown among thorns, the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches Choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It is unfruitful also. This is the thorny ground. The human heart here is compared to thorny ground, and in thorny ground, it is possible for the seed to come up a little bit, to produce a little bit, but not to produce fruit. It comes up, but the thorns overcome this seed and it says there, it is the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. All of the worries, all of the anxieties of life that are common anxieties that people have, those things overwhelm, those things smother this seed that was sown. They overwhelm and smother that individual so that it chokes the word. It sucks out the life of that word. It takes away all the water and all the, the nutrients of the soil. It takes away everything the thorns do, and the seed doesn't get what it needs to be fruitful. It is unfruitful instead of fruitful. Here too, this individual did not die in faith because he had no fruit of faith. He did not endure until the end. Once the anxieties or the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches entered his life, he became unfruitful. Nothing was there. He did not die in faith. The fourth one. Notice, three out of four do not die in faith. They walk away from the faith. Only the fourth endures. Verse 23. 
and the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. This fourth ground is known as good ground because it has everything necessary. It did not fall on the road. It did not fall um, in any place where there were thorns and rocks. It fell on good ground and it bore fruit. He hears it, he understands it, and then he bears fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. This is the fruit of the Spirit. And there's different levels or different amounts. Hundredfold, sixty, and thirty. This is the one who died in faith. The other three did not. In fact, in the parallel of this in Luke chapter 8, the parallel of this in Luke chapter 8, he actually does use the word for perseverance. In Luke 8.15, describing this final fourth soil, he says, And the seed in the good ground, these are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart, and hold it fast, and bear fruit with perseverance. They have an honest and good heart, hold it fast, they cling on to it, bear fruit with perseverance. This is what our apostle meant when he said, all these died in faith. Whether it's Abel, who was murdered, he died in faith. Whether it was Noah, who eventually died, he died in faith, even though he and his family were the only ones spared in the great flood. He died in faith. As well as Abraham and Sarah, they died in faith. They didn't give up. They didn't turn away. They didn't fall away. They didn't say, this is too hard. They died in faith. Now, notice back in 11.13, Hebrews 11.13, this is an amazing statement. He says, all these died in faith without receiving the promises. They died in faith without receiving the promises. He means that the promises were announced to them, and though they received tokens of the fulfillment of those promises, they never fully experienced those promises. Never. Abraham never saw his descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore. Abraham never saw his own descendants possess all of the land of Canaan. Abraham never possessed all of the land of Canaan. Yet these promises were given to Abraham. Abraham never saw Jesus Christ born into the world. And yet that promise was also announced to Abraham. He never saw all of these things come to fruition. And he was promised resurrection from the dead. But he never saw any resurrection from the dead. He never saw that. He never saw the great resurrection or the general resurrection at the end of the age, which we will all experience. He never saw these things. In a token, he experienced these things, but he never saw these things come to fruition, and yet he believed. He still believed, even though he never touched them. He never saw them with his own eyes. 
This is true of Abraham, it's true of Sarah, it's true of Noah, and all the others mentioned before and who are mentioned afterward, such as Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Moses and Rahab and Samson and Gideon, Barak, Deborah, all of these individuals, they looked ahead and said, I believe whatever God's word says. I will stand on that word and I know God will be faithful. And a little here, a little there, God grants blessings. He grants favor. He shows us his grace and love toward us, his mercy towards us. And that helps us along. It prods us along. Though we never come to the fruition of it until the end of the age. We never see it happen 100% until the end of the world. When Jesus returns, destroys this world and creates a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is the kind of faith they had. They didn't receive those promises. And so what did they do instead? Verse 13 says, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, they had such great faith in the word of God that they saw these things from a distance. They knew, such as Abraham seeing Christ, that it would take a long, long time and he was going to die before Christ ever came into the world to die for his sins. He saw that going far, far in the future. And even eternal life and the resurrection of the dead and being in an immortal, glorified body forever and ever, the day of judgment, even that is yet future to us. It was future to Abraham and all the others, and it's also even future to us. But they saw these things because they had faith. Remember verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Even Noah, verse 7, by faith, being warned by God about things not yet seen. Verse 27, by faith he, Moses, left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. All of this is emphasized because that's what it takes when we have true faith. We know that what God has in store for us in the future is better than what he has for us now. But we are here to prepare for the future. Verse 13 also says, And having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This raises the question, did Abraham and the others, did they know that their life on earth was temporary? Did they know that? Did they have conscious awareness of it? Or is this simply something that religious zealots later, like the apostles or even us, we just kind of impose it on the text, but Abraham did not really know. Was Abraham really just living to have a good life now? Was he just living for peace, progeny, and a pot belly? Was he just living to have as many riches as possible and all the comforts and ease of life as much as possible? That's all that he was really about because he didn't know anything about life, eternal life, the unseen world, what happens after death. He didn't know about any of that. In fact, that is a very common belief. It is a very common belief in Christianity. In popular Christianity, this is what they think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel. This is what they think of all of the people of the Old Testament. They were clueless. They did not know that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. 
Well, he actually asserts here that they did know, that they confessed, they openly confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. He says that they did that. Now, is the apostle correct? Or is he misrepresenting Abraham? Well, let's see. Let's see a couple of examples. Genesis chapter 47. Genesis chapter 47. By this point, we have Jacob and his family migrating to Egypt because of the famine in the land of Canaan. And when Jacob approaches Pharaoh, when Jacob approaches Pharaoh, Jacob the patriarch, who has a retinue of 70 people with him, he comes to the land of Egypt. This is what he says to Pharaoh. Genesis 47, verse 9. So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. He compares himself to his fathers. And if he's comparing himself to Abraham, Abraham lived to be 175 years old. Isaac lived to be 180 years old. And Jacob says up to this point that he's only lived to be 130. Compared to his father and grandfather, it wasn't <laughs> reaching that point. Eventually he lived to be another 17 years after this, so he died at the age of 147. He was still about 30 years behind his father and grandfather. So he says, notice that he says he's been sojourning and he's had a rough and hard life. And he also says here that they're sojourning. He says that Abraham and Isaac sojourn. Well, who sojourns? Who sojourns but someone who knows that his life now is temporary and he's an alien or a stranger. He's a pilgrim right now. That's why he's sojourning. He knew and he tells Pharaoh that he is a sojourner. Now, if anyone should not have used that word if he meant it merely in a physical way, in a national way, in terms of citizenship, it should not have been Jacob. Because we know Abraham did not, he was not born in the land of Canaan. He migrated to the land of Canaan. His native land was Mesopotamia, Babylon, or Chaldea. That's where he was from, Ur of the Chaldeans. He was from that city specifically. He was from that place. He was born there. He migrated to Canaan. But Isaac was born there, and Jacob was born in Canaan. So in terms of their nativity, they had citizenship in that sense from Canaan, not from Mesopotamia. So why would he call himself a sojourner if he were a citizen? Because he's meaning it in a spiritual way. He's meaning it in the sense that he knows that there is a life to come and that is where his citizenship resides. That's why it said in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven. Even Paul talked that way and thought that way. This is the way of the patriarchs. Another example is with David. David, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, 1 Chronicles chapter 29 and verse 15. 1 Chronicles 29, 15. David himself is about to die and he says the following. He's praying and he says, For we are sojourners before you and tenants. As all our fathers were, our days on the earth are like a shadow and there is no hope. 
This verse reads like Psalm 39, which we read earlier. He says, our days on the earth are like a shadow. There's no hope here. And we are what? We are sojourners and we are tenants. Tenants don't own the place. The landlord owns the place. The tenants don't own it. Sojourners consider themselves to be aliens or, or temporary in the land because their citizenship, where they actually belong, is from another country, another nation. But here, David, who was born in the land of Israel, even in a time when Israel owned it under the kingship of King Saul, he was there. He was there. So when he calls himself a sojourner and a tenant, and even his predecessors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, their children, they were all sojourners and tenants because he says, as all our fathers were. Even though David lived a thousand years after Abraham, he's still using the same terminology of Abraham, <coughs> Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore, when the apostle says that they confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, he's not misinterpreting. He's not reading back into it. He is citing passages like this, alluding to passages like 1 Chronicles 29, 15, to prove his case. They knew about it, and they lived that way. And they confessed it that way. They said, life here on earth is miserable compared to the life to come. Right now it's short. Right now it's unpleasant. Right now it's miserable. Right now we are like a shadow. There's no hope here. No, the hope is in the life to come. 14. Back to Hebrews eleven fourteen. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. They are seeking a country of their own that belongs to them, not belongs to somebody else, but it belongs to them. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. That's an interesting statement. Verse 15. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Abraham left Ur of the Chaldeans in southern Mesopotamia. He traveled hundreds of miles with a few of his family members to migrate in northern Mesopotamia. And after that, for a few years there, he entered the land of Canaan. And that's where he spent the rest of his life. Abraham, just to use one example, Abraham could have returned to Ur of the Chaldeans. He had numerous occasions when he could have done that. In Genesis chapter 12, it says that there was a famine in the land of Canaan. After he arrived there, at some point there was a famine in the land of Canaan. But instead of returning to Ur, he went to Egypt to sojourn there, the text says. It literally says to sojourn there, to go there temporarily because he's going back to Canaan because he trusted in the promises of God. But instead of going to Mesopotamia, he just temporarily went to Egypt. And then in chapter 13, there is strife between the herdsmen of Lot and the herdsmen of Abraham because the land can't sustain both of them. They have so many animals and so many people that they have to separate. And when they did separate within the land of Canaan, Abraham didn't say, well, actually, Lot, you just stay here in Canaan. I'm going to go back to Mesopotamia. I'm going to go back to Ur. But he didn't do that. In chapter 14, there's warfare. There's warfare unexpectedly, and some of Abraham's people, like Lot and some of the relatives and the possessions, 
They're taken away because of the warfare. And Abraham could have thrown up his hand and said, look, this is too difficult. What am I going to do? I'm just going to go back to the land of Ur of the Chaldeans. But he didn't. What did he, what did he do? He gathered his trained men, he gathered some allies, and he went back and recovered in warfare what he lost unexpectedly. He went back and recovered everyone safely. Instead of saying, I give up. I'm, this is too hard. It, these people around here are too evil and wicked. I can't tolerate it. He didn't do that. And then in chapter 15, he's wondering who's going to be his son. He doesn't have a son yet. God has promised us somebody. A son hasn't come yet. And by the time he's 86 years old, he entered when he was 75. When he's 86, he has his first son, Ishmael, which means he waited at least 10 years. And within 10 years in the land of Canaan, there's no son. He could have said, God, I was hoping it was going to happen in my 76th year. I was hoping it was going to happen in my 80th year. And it hasn't happened. I'm going to go back to Ur. We could go on and on and on with Abraham's life. He had many, many opportunities to say, I give up. I'm going to walk away from all this. I'm going to fall away from all this. I'm not going to believe. I'm not going to trust you, God. I'm going to live my life the way I want. He did not. That's why the apostle says here, Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. Oh, one more example that is a clear, very clear example is in Genesis chapter 24. When, after Isaac was born, when it was time for Isaac to be married, Abraham sent his servant to go back to the land of Haran where some of the relatives had remained, to go over there to find among the relatives a daughter to marry Isaac. And the servant said, well, what if this woman does not want to come with me back here to the land of Canaan? Should I just take Isaac from here to go live over there outside of the land of Canaan? And Abraham has a quick answer. He says, you better not, basically. He says, you better not. And he made the servant swear that he would never do such a thing. Don't you ever do that, is basically what he told the servant. No, I want that woman to come here because... Essentially, he trusted the promises of God. And he also promised that God would make his way successful. Abraham knew in faith that God would make the servant's way successful to find a bride for Isaac. And that's what actually happened in that chapter. Verse 16. Hebrews eleven sixteen, But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. This is what we've been saying. This is what we've been saying, that God puts hope before us. He sets it forth and he tells us constantly throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, that I have something better than the things of this life. I have something better than everything and anything you can imagine here. I have something better for you. Can you not see? Will you not see? Put faith in what I'm telling you. I've given you ample illustrations, both in the life of others and in your own life, that I am faithful, I'm good, I'm gracious, I'm merciful, I'm compassionate towards you. I've got all of this abundance to give you. Believe in it. Put your hope in it. Faith in my word, that there is a better country, a heavenly country. That which comes from heaven, how could it be impure, imperfect, worthless, mortal? How could it be anything like that? No, 
Whatever comes from heaven has to be supremely better than what is on the earth. We have to come to this realization that whatever is beyond our grasp, physical grasp, is indeed better. The Holy Spirit working in us must produce this. This is what we need. This is what we long for. We need to have that within us, and this is what we need to teach others to do. We need to teach others to live for the world to come, to live for the heavenly blessings. It will last forever. And in what sense could that which lasts forever and is good be lesser, be lesser than what we experience now? No, it cannot. Whatever is eternal and good is what we need, is what we want. We should want if we have faith, true faith. And finally, in verse 16, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. God has prepared a place for us, a heavenly country, a heavenly city, the heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly Zion. He uses these kinds of phrases in chapter 12, and, and also in chapter 13, here and 12 and 13, that this is what God has prepared. Now, if he has prepared this for us, why? Why? Notice he says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Think for a moment. Shouldn't God be ashamed to be called or to be known as our God? Should he not be ashamed? Well, if we are proud, if we are arrogant, we have this conceit, we might think, well, you know, I'm, I'm a swell chap after all. And I, I'm not really as bad as people say. I'm not really as bad as what the Bible says. I'm not really corrupt and evil. I, I, I really like uh, to do good to people. And I have some, some knowledge of God, true knowledge of God, right knowledge of God, correct knowledge. And so I'm not that bad. Why are you saying that? And why would God ever be ashamed to, to call me um, his, his child? He should not, not be ashamed. I'm fine just as I am. I don't need anything. I don't need Christ. I don't need the righteousness of Christ. I don't need what you're saying about this gospel because I'm just fine. A lot of people think that way, both men and women. They think that way. They think that they're not so bad. <coughs> That's because they're comparing themselves by themselves and they're comparing themselves to other people, what they see on the surface. They're not comparing themselves to the true mirror, which is the word of God that tells us about the holiness of God. When they do that, then they think they're not so bad. When actually, they are detestable, they are shameful, they are spiteful, they are like a filthy rag, Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6 and 7. They are like a filthy rag. They are like rubbish, as we read in Philippians 3, 6 and 7. We are like rubbish. We're like putrid, uh, stinky garbage. That's the way we are. That's the way we are in the sight of God. So he should be ashamed of us. He should be ashamed of us. And we, therefore, because he has redeemed us, we should not be ashamed of him. He redeemed us by the blood of Christ. He gave us the righteousness of Christ, the holiness of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the purity of Christ, the blamelessness of Christ. He has reckoned that, counted that to us because we believe in him. So when he looks at us, he sees the purity, the perfection, the holiness of Christ on us, 
And when he sees his only son, his only begotten son in us, and the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, he doesn't see us for who we really are. He sees us because of what Christ has done for us. He sees us that way, and when he sees us that way, because we are united to Christ, we are one with Christ, we are in Christ, because of that, he's not ashamed. He's willing to identify with us because we have joined ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not ashamed. This is not the first time he has said that. In chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 11, it says, 2.11, he is not ashamed to call them brethren or brothers. He's not ashamed to identify us in the same family. God is not ashamed because of the righteousness of Christ. Because we are in Christ, he is our elder brother. He is our head. He is our father in a relational sense, not in a Trinitarian sense, but in a relational sense. Because he is that, there's no shame. We belong to each other. We belong to one another. Therefore, if God is not ashamed of us, we should not be ashamed of him. We should not be ashamed of him. Jesus warns us of this in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 38, Jesus said, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, but in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We should not be ashamed of him. He warns us, ashamed of him and his words. We cannot separate the two. We cannot be ashamed of him and the words of Christ because in, this midst, in the midst of this adulterous and sinful generation, we should not. Because if we are ashamed of him, he, on the day of judgment, when he returns, will be ashamed of us. And he's not going to come alone, but even then, he could, by his power, deal with us alone. But he's going to come with us, come with him, with the holy angels to destroy those who are ashamed of him. God's not ashamed of us in Christ, therefore we should not be ashamed of him. And if we are ashamed of him, it shows that we don't really believe his promises. We will shrink back to destruction. Finally, it says in 1 John 2, 1 John 2, 28, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Let's be that way. Let's not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Let's have this faith. Faith in God, enduring faith that remains until the very end. Why would we not? He has put forth in front of us eternal life. And that is a better life than this life. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.
Father in heaven, we pray that you'll grant us everything we need to live this way. Grant us, every one of us, to us who hear and to our loved ones. We ask you, Lord, to change our hearts, to renew us, to revive us, to grant to us all that we need to live for the world to come and not for this world. Lord, we are weak. We have uh, great fickleness and double-mindedness. It's very difficult many times to live the way we should day by day. We ask you, Lord, to change us and to enable us to desire the word of God, to desire the kingdom of God and your righteousness. May we desire everything that we ought to do just like others have done. May we not think that we are above them. May we not think that we are better than them. For let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. May we not fall. May we not fall away. Give us enduring faith. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.